0: Father, as we come to look at your word today, I pray that it would not be as a storm of words that comes at us, but it would be a revelation to us of who you are, Lord, and who you would like us to be. And Lord, I pray that your word will impact us and change us and make us more like you, that we might give you glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, unsurprisingly, uh, we're still in the book of Ephesians. This week we are in chapter 2, verse 4. And uh, if you could please turn there now. I think you will agree that our last look at the book of Ephesians was hard going. I can honestly tell you that I really didn't enjoy delivering a message like that, full of stuff on sin and sons of disobedience and children of wrath and so on. However, I said in closing, it is good and helpful for us to look at pictures from our past, from time to time, to remind us of exactly how far we have come. And further, we must also be honest enough to confront the hard things that Scripture brings to light, as well as the good things that are there in such abundance. Now this week we will be looking at some of those good things and this includes a very fundamental part of our salvation. So let's read then from Ephesians 2. I'm going to read a bit from either side of the passage for this week just so we get the flow and the idea of what's going on. Starting in verse 1 then. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Hmm. Now, who here knows what a handbrake turn is? Ah, yes, I think we're going to have to... uh, You know what a handbrake turn is. I'm impressed. (laughs) Well, a handbrake turn is a useful... A very spectacular driving technique, which is used to deliberately slide a car sideways, either for the purpose of going around a very tight bend quickly, or perhaps sometimes you might want to turn around in a very narrow road, and by yanking on the handbrake, you can pretty much turn the car around in its own length. And I know the police love them. Now, I know two, uh, two younger men on hand- handbrake turns, some girls, some girls might be impressed by this technique, but there are a lot who won't, and they are generally the ones who are worth impressing. So... (laughs) Now, this is how they're done. You see, you're driving down the road, and you have to have a bit of speed going on, and you uh, you turn the wheel hard, and you simultaneously pull the handbrake, and the car starts to slide around, okay? And with practice, you can actually do all kinds of things with the car. You can shoot off at... uh, at the right angle, or perhaps at the wrong angle if you haven't practised them properly, or you can go right round and round if you want. They're really good things. Well, I personally, I personally have never done a handbrake turn. But I have heard from a friend that if they're done on dirt roads, it's a really good idea to close the car window. (laughs) Okay. Children, please don't do this at home. and Especially don't say that the preacher said you should do it. Okay. So what's the point? Well, with these two great words, but God, Paul has executed a spiritual handbrake turn. One minute, the reader is heading at great speed away from God towards certain death. But suddenly, their direction changes and they are headed back towards life. We have already heard these words, but God, many times. They are one of the most significant phrases in scripture. And whenever we see them, we can be certain that we will find a stupendous and significant change is about to take place. In this case, a change in spiritual state for the sinner, from the valley of gloom and despondency to the heights of joy in the kingdom of God. There is now a completely different and new situation thanks to God's initiative, and we know that it is His work alone, since the text simply says, but God. It says absolutely nothing about man. And how can these words fail to be significant? After all, they point directly to God, and, and when we say that God has done, or is doing, or is going to do something, given his awesome nature, how can it fail to be stupendous and significant? It can't. It just isn't possible. Now, why do we enjoy this change in circumstance? Paul writes in part that it stems from God's richness in mercy. Now, I think it's true that most of us would like to be rich and we would understand that we, were, we had arrived at being rich if we had enough money to just carelessly spend on anything we wanted. You know, we could go into the Ferrari dealership and say, I'll have that one, please, in blue. And uh, we could do so without thinking, well, you know, Gotta buy some milk for the kids. Ferrari or milk? I'm never sure. <laughs> That's enough abuse, thank you. <laughs> now, the Greek word that Paul uses for richness is plousios, and it means just such an abundance of wealth or abounding with it. You see, God doesn't have to be mean with His mercy. It isn't some insignificant little part of his character that we might just benefit from if we attract his attention by doing things exactly right. No. He abounds in mercy. He overflows with it, which is more than fortunate for us when we consider the continuous nature of our sinfulness and the death that it is otherwise leading us into. He has what man needs. He has what you and I need. The only requirement is that we believe in Him. No matter what we have done, or for that matter continue to do, God has an inexhaustible supply of mercy for us, provided that we claim Jesus as our Saviour and our Lord. Let's talk a little bit theologically about this word mercy. Firstly, it's classified as being one of the attributes of God, one of the consistent parts of His character. Mercy is more specifically described as a communicable attribute. Now, let me try to explain this. Some of the things that make God what he is cannot be shared with man. For example, his eternal existence. It's plain that no human ever shares a state of eternal being with God because we have a definite beginning and an end. God has no beginning or end. And these, um, these parts of God's character are therefore known as incommunicable attributes. And others, which we do have in common with Him, like mercy, they are known as communicable. Now, communicable is a kind of a long word. It's a bit hard to get your tongue around. But it's just describing something that can be passed on easily, like flu or a cold. You know, we, we know of them as being communicable diseases. You can get them just from being in the same room as someone. And humans share the ability to be merciful with God. It has been passed on to us by our Creator, and therefore that's why it's known as a communicable attribute. And since we are on the subject of God's attributes, I want to take this opportunity to say a bit more about them, because, sorry, who's passing something on there? <laughs> I want to say a bit more about them, because it's important that we learn more about God whenever we can. Why? Well, I think there are at least two good reasons. Firstly, the more we know, the more reason there is for us to give Him praise. I say this because the more we come to understand God, the more that we can see that it was a very, very mighty and merciful and gracious and loving thing He has done by forgiving and redeeming us. Secondly, we are all on this journey together of becoming more Christ-like, this journey of sanctification. If we are to become genuine imitators of Jesus, then we need to know what we are imitating. We can't just make it up as we go along, can we? It must be accurate and it must be well understood or our efforts might be wasted. That is why we need to take time to search out God's character in Scripture. Today, we have encountered this topic of mercy so let's be sure we know what it means and where it fits into his character. Now, Scripture's picture of God is that it is one of unity. It never suggests that any one of his attributes is more important than the rest. In First John, we read in chapter 1 that God is light, and then a little bit later on in chapter 4 that God is love. So which one is he? Is he light or is he love? How can he be both at once? Is there a part of him perhaps we could just cut off and say, oh, there's the love bit, now there's none left in the rest of him. Well, of course not. That's not what scripture is telling us. Every attribute of God is completely true of him and is true for all of his character. Just think about that for a moment. Does it make you, your headache? ache? mine does a little bit. It's it's so hard to understand. I want to put some diagrams up from Wayne Grudem's book on systematic theology that might help. Firstly, why are you laughing? It's a very clear diagram. Firstly, we can't think about God being a collection of localized attributes that look like this because then you could cut one off and he wouldn't be left with anything like that. So, we can't say that uh, love is in his big toe, knowledge is in his left eyebrow, and the load of mercy is in his right knee. I and mean, that's obviously nonsense. What other way could we imagine? Well, another picture we might have is that there is some core of character that is surrounded by his attributes, like this one here. Well, that's wrong as well, because it still suggests that we could dissect an attribute away from the whole, And that somehow they are additions to his being. They've been stuck on. If so, where did they come from? How and when and why? And that opens a whole can of worms. Where will we find an answer? Well, uh, there's a verse in 1 John 4.8 that says, He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Now, note, Two things about this. Firstly, it supports what I've said about the importance of knowing the character of God. We cannot know real love if we do not know God. Knowing him is a prerequisite to loving properly. Secondly, it says God is love. Not part of God is love. He is holy love. There isn't one part of him that doesn't have it. Now, the Greek word being used for love here is agape. The Greeks were much smarter than us, I think, in describing love because they had a number of words to explain different kinds of love, which, for example, made it possible for a bloke to tell his mate that he loves him without creating the wrong idea. Agape is one of these words which is often used in Scripture to specifically describe God's love although not exclusively, because it does have some other uses. And I know this is old news for a lot of people here, but it will be new and valuable for some. Since there are, I'm sure, a lot of people who do know about what agape love is, I want to ask you if you could try to give me one word that you think would describe it. Any offerings? Godly love, yes. It is godly love. Unconditional, okay. Unconditional is the word that's most often used to describe agape love. And it is, sort of. Um, I was, I'd always held that uh, opinion myself, but um, in preparation for the sermon, I found that it's, it's actually a little bit different. It seems that agape is primarily a love of the will rather than the emotions, You see, we won't find the New Testament speaking of God as loving humans in an emotional way or with a love that expects something in return. He loves us through His will. Now, consider Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates His own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. A lot of us know that verse. Now, it stands to reason that God would not have sent Jesus to die for us if he had an ordinary emotional kind of love, because that love is often quite selfish and easily offended. And the offense of our sin would cause God to pull away if he only had that emotional sort of love. And clearly he didn't, because he sent Jesus. Also, he wouldn't have sent Jesus if he expected something back. After all, what can any puny and mortal human offered to an omnipotent, omniscient and omnipresent God. No. This indescribably gracious act must have come through his will. Now the singer Don Francisco, he wrote a song entitled Love is Not a Feeling. And although it is really aimed at marriage, the chorus is a great illustration for us of what agape love is about. It goes like this, it says, Jesus didn't die for you because it was fun. He hung there for love because it had to be done. And despite of the anguish, his word was fulfilled, love is not a feeling, it's an act of your will. Love is not a feeling, it's an act of your will. Although we usually associate agape with God, it is true that men and women can love this way too. And we should remember this when things are difficult with those who are closest to us because it will be a true imitation of Christ when we act lovingly and unselfishly. Let's go back to to looking a little bit more uh, specifically about God's love. Uh, The Moody Handbook of Theology offers this definition of God's love. It says, God's love may be defined as that perfection of the divine nature by which God is eternally moved to communicate himself. It is not a mere emotional impulse, but a rational and voluntary affection having its ground in truth and holiness and its exercise in free choice. So agape is a kind of reasoned out love that loves the subject without concern for its worth and even though that love may not be returned. I want to emphasize, however, that's not to say that it is all, at all cold and calculating. I hope that it's true, I really pray that it is true, that all of us here have at one time or another experienced some touch of the Lord's love. We know then that it is profoundly warm and embracing and a delight to encounter. Some of you might be wondering by now why I seem to have gone off on a bit of a tangent about love. Well, it's not really a tangent, as we will see when we consider the rest of verse 4. But I really wanted to demonstrate the completeness of God's love to show that it can't be possibly any kind of stick-on attribute. It's what He is, as the verse says. He is love, but also light and mercy and justice and all of those things. How can this possibly be? The truth is that God's whole being includes all of His attributes in a complete way. He is entirely loving and entirely merciful, for example. It's very hard to explain the mysterious, but it might be helpful to imagine God's character as looking like this. Okay? The horizontal lines might represent His love, the vertical lines His justice, and the diagonals say His mercy and wisdom. They go right through His whole being, and they all exist, and they are all true at once. If we could cut him right through in any way to take a cross-section of God, we would find clear evidence of those attributes exposed right through it. God himself is a unity, a unified and completely integrated whole person who is infinitely perfect in all of these attributes. Of course, this is very complicated and we might wonder why Scripture bothers to talk about these different attributes at all. I think it has a great deal to do with our inability to grasp just how different God is to us. It allows us to learn about him from some different perspectives over a period of time. You know, today I'm going to study mercy. Well, tomorrow I'm going to look at wrath. It gives me a chance to look at bits at a time. And the whole is just too much for us at once. However, these perspectives should never be set in opposition to one another because they are just different ways of looking at the same thing. We can't say, for example, that because God is both wrath and mercy at the same time, that they actually cancel each other out and he's really neutral. That's not true. He is both, absolutely and perfectly. And although it's too much for us to understand, let's just be content. That's how it is. Instead of trying to understand that it's fundamentally not understandable to mere humans, God is love, God is merciful, and we benefit from his unity and perfection and all of his attributes, and we should leave it there. Praise God. So, after this probably confusing diversion into the attributes of God, let's go back to asking the question, what is mercy in the context of God? We know from our text today that God is rich in it and that it has a very important part in us being made spiritually alive from the state of hopeless death. But what is it? What is mercy? Grudem defines mercy as God's goodness towards those in misery and distress. Now, given what we have just been reading a short while ago in Ephesians about the condition of those in bondage to Satan, I reckon that that's a thoroughly appropriate definition. As sinners, we were in misery and distress. And we desperately needed God's goodness. And what is the consequence of His goodness? Is it a kind word or a food parcel of some kind? That is often the extent of human mercy. God's goodness as an expression of His mercy has much more profound effects. What did we read earlier? We read, But God, who is rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. A little while back I said that we would see that a discussion on God's love wasn't wasted because of the rest of verse 4 and verse 5. Here is the proof. It is part of the equation. God is both merciful and loving, and because He is so, acted to bring us back to life and make us alive with Christ. I'm going to say that again. God is both merciful and loving, and because He has so acted to bring us back to life, and more than that, make us alive in Christ. It's amazing. Now, I want to ask you to try and imagine this situation. okay? Adolf Hitler is standing on the edge of a cliff. And he's wobbling. He's about to fall to his death. You know who he is. You are fully aware that his actions have directly caused the death of 50 million people. And untold suffering for millions more. A whole continent was shattered by war. And yet, you feel mercy for him. He is, after all, human like you. And your will to save him overcomes the revulsion that you feel, so that you reach out and you save him. Now, some might walk away at this point. We've done the minimum that's required. But for you, this isn't enough. You take him home, you clean him up, and you feed him, you treat him like one of your family. Friends, this is what God has done for us. In our sin, we were just as disgusting to God as Hitler would be to you and I. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Isn't that remarkable? Isn't that fantastic? Isn't that totally overwhelming? I've said before that there are moments when I'm sitting in church and I hear something so profound that it touches me in a way so that there's part of me wants to jump up and shout, Yes! That's true! Praise God! But we don't generally do that in Baptist churches, so I sit there quietly. (laughs) For me, this is one of those moments. This is truth, friends. God has made us alive when we deserve only to be dead. Now, I don't care what you do outwardly. But I do care and I pray that this knowledge would be something that would glow in you like a small sun inside you at all times. That you would always be aware of it and that brightness would drive your every waking moment. Because that is the appropriate response to this gift. Now, it was amazing to me, Colin, that you read the verse that you did at the beginning of the sermon, at the, the service, because that's what we're going to finish with. Beginning and the end of the service. This is my prayer for you, for me. and height To know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus for all generations. Amen. Amen.